Hello, everybody, and welcome to Returning to Tradition. As always, I'm your host, Chris Dixon, joined with... Your better host, Emma Singletary. And today we're going to be beginning a two-part podcast on the sacraments. So stay tuned. Listen in. So, Chris, we're going to talk about the sacraments of initiation today. What are those sacraments of initiation? So we have three sacraments of initiation. We have baptism confirmation in Eucharist, and I said those in that order for a reason. We'll talk about the reason later on. Um, and why do we call them the sacraments of initiation? Yeah, so these are like the sacraments that make somebody um, fully part of the church. And so, um, and of course, baptism, we are baptized into the church, become adopted sons and daughters of God the Father. Um, and so that's that's like our welcome into the church. Of course, we are in communion with the church by receiving communion, the Eucharist. And then um, for, for most Roman Catholics, confirmation occurs after that. And then uh, at that point is when we are confirmed in the faith um, and the Holy Spirit is set aflame within us um, to, to go out um, and, and practice. Um, okay, so <laughs> we're just going to start off with the first one, obviously, for Catholics is baptism. Um, why do we, in the Catholic Church, baptize babies? Yeah, so um, baptizing infants is an old tradition. Um, baptism is arguably one of the most diverse practices in the early church, and so that spreads from everything to infants, to adults, to being immersed in water, to being water poured over oneself, to being sprinkled with water, um, like a wide range of traditions associated with baptism. And so um, over time, the prevailing idea became that we should baptize infants because it is through baptism with which we are the adopted sons and daughters of God, as I mentioned earlier um, and so through that we are able to you know become uh, part of the kingdom and it's through baptism um, and of course continued uh, conversion of the faith that we are saved and so that first step baptism must be done and that's why we we do it to infants early on because you know, baptism is a necessary requirement for salvation. Not that God works within requirements, but it's a necessary requirement for salvation um, in normal circumstances. And so um, baptism was done early on because not many infants lived past their infancy. Um, and so baptizing infants offered a way for them to make it to heaven um, despite, you know, not really having actively sinned in their life, but still having this stain of original sin within themselves. So kind of going off that, um, where does the free will aspect of baptism for us as Catholics go into play? Because I know for a lot of our Protestant brothers and sisters, they get to choose to be baptized. So for us, where is that choice? Yeah, so it's... It's a comp more complicated than a free will decision. Um, 
that we make. So I want to take a step back and go through how infant baptism works. So infant baptism works by parents declaring um, first in their marriage that they're going to raise their children in the faith. And so that's the first step of, of most cradle Catholics' um, baptism narrative is that their parents are married Catholics and they say, we are going to raise our children in the faith and uphold that. And so the reason parents do that at their wedding and they say that they're going to do all of these important things like raising children in the faith is because we believe that the Catholic faith is the true faith. And so parents then choose to baptize their children in the Catholic faith because that's what they committed to when they got married. And then they commit to teaching their children the faith. And so that's where the free will part comes in to play is that we then listen to our parents listen to our pastors, our religious educators, and they teach us the faith, hopefully in a way that explains the truth of the faith well enough that we continue to be Catholic because it is the truth. And so why would you leave the truth if you know that it is the truth? And so, um, yeah, there's not really a free will aspect that you actively make in the moment of your baptism, obviously, because you're an infant, you can't. But um, there's a free will aspect after the fact, um, once you have been properly um, educated and catechized in the faith. Well, and I would even argue that there is a free will aspect in baptism in the fact that your parents are choosing that for you in the yeah. same way. So not that there isn't a free will aspect just as a baby just like you're not choosing what you do as a baby. Yeah, I, I well, like, think of anything that babies do, right? Like, babies don't do anything. <laughs> their, parent, their parents do these things. And so it's through their parents that they, they are chosen, called yes. to baptism. Kind of based off that same thing, godparents in the Catholic faith. Mm -hmm. Very different than godparents... In the secular world, what are godparents responsible for in the Catholic faith? Yeah, so godparents are a little weird. At least my brother and I's experience with <laughs> our godparents. It's not like you know we actively talk to them that much um, or at all. And so um, the idea within the rite of baptism is that the godparents are there for kind of sort of two reasons. First is that they like kind of sort of in the absence of the parent are the ones who will raise the child in brackets in the faith. And so it's not necessarily a requirement, at least anymore, to, to you know, like adopt the child if the parents die, and you know, but to be another faith figure in the events that the parent can't be. Um, and the second one is related to the sacrament of confirmation in that when you enter the church as an adult uh, for the sacrament of confirmation, you have a sponsor and your sponsor, um, you know, attests to the fact that, you know, you're a Catholic and yeah, they're going to make a great um, person within the church. 
And so um, the role of godparent mirrors that role within confirmation. Confirmation and baptism, very close to one another, kind of sort of the reason I put them next to each other when saying what the sacraments of initiation were. Oh, so going off that, do you want to go into confirmation? Or yeah, what? sure. Let's go for so, it. So I guess we start with why did you do it in that order? Because, you know, if we're thinking logically and what is it? Well, called? it depends on what you mean by logically, Emma, because you're, you might offend some people by saying that, such as myself. Because um, you believe that confirmation should happen when you're a baby. <laughs> yeah, so let's talk about that, right? Um, so, yeah, in everywhere except for Rome, uh, which by Rome I mean the Western Church. Uh, so everywhere in the Western Church, baptism and confirmation are separated from one another. But in the Eastern Church, which some of them are, in fact, Catholic, um the, the two sacraments are intertwined with one another, such that confirmation occurs right after baptism. And so immediately you are in the fullness of the faith. Because again, if we continue educating our children in the true Catholic faith, why would, like, there's not a necessary component to, you know, not be Catholic because... You're Catholic, and again, if Catholicism is the truth, et cetera, et cetera, that's where we're going to be. So um, confirmation is done right away, and it's done like this for everybody. So everybody, no matter what your age, um, in the East, when you're baptized, you're confirmed right afterward and receive the Eucharist right after that. And the reason for that, yes, even if you're an infant, receive the Eucharist right after that. And the reason for that is that you're in the fullness of the church from early on. You receive all of those sacraments of initiation from early on. You're in communion with the church from early on. It's silly, in my mind, personally, to say that a 10-year-old, okay, not a 10-year-old, uh, what, what's the age people receive communion? Second grade. Second grade, seven-ish. That a five-year-old has committed a mortal sin that has separated from the church, excommunicating themselves, and therefore are not able to receive communion. Why should a five-year-old not receive communion? He certainly hasn't committed any mortal sins. He certainly hasn't committed heresy. And he's been baptized in the church. So why shouldn't he receive the Eucharist? Um, I mean, he's in communion with the church. He goes to Mass every Sunday with his parents. All of these things. And so um, the the way I heard it described by... Um, an Orthodox priest was that um, in the Catholic Church we have three types of Christians. We have baptized Christians, we have baptized and communing Christians, and we have baptized, communing, confirmed Christians. In the East, in the Orthodox Church, in the Eastern Catholic Church, there's only one type of Christian. There's baptized, communing, confirmed Christians. There's no other, like, middle steps between the two. You don't work your way up the levels of Christianity. There's only one type of Christian. And so I like that idea personally because, again, I, I find it silly that kids can't receive communion because they haven't done anything to be excommunicated and not receive communion away from communion of the church. Um, and so um, that's why I put them in that order, because 
of the historical continuity between baptism and confirmation itself and with respect to our Eastern brethren, confirmation and baptism happen right after one another and then the Eucharist. And also the Eucharist is ongoing throughout our lives. It's not something that we um, do once when we're welcoming into the church. We continue to do it um, you know, every Sunday or at least once a year. Multiple questions. Yeah. First, we're just going to address it for everyone wondering. Uh-huh. How does a baby receive the Eucharist? Okay. Um, so... Do they, like, chew it for it with the baby? And then no. Like, so <laughs> it's a... The thing is, it's a whole lot easier in the East. And I'll explain this because it's more mushy. Um, what? Yeah. So... Like so potatoes? <laughs> so in the East, they use leavened bread. So risen bread, like... I don't know, like a loaf of bread. They get actual bread? Yeah. Bruh. Um, Yeah. Anyways, um, they use risen bread, and it's within a chalice with wine in it. Of course, course, the blood of Christ, right? They're giving a baby? Let me finish. Let me finish. Let me finish. There's a spoon. (laughs) And so the, the priest, you know, like dips... The, the communion spoon in gets has like a piece of bread and soaked in a little bit of wine. It's not like a lot of wine, okay? This baby's gonna be and the drunk. parent like <laughs> like you know gets their child to open up their mouth and just does the flick of the wrist into the mouth. Okay. And so it's it's I mean that's how adults receive it too. Like adults just open their mouth and it's flick of the wrist in the mouth. Like, it seems like it could be so bad if it got. Dude, yes. these priests are professionals, though. <laughs> they, the do the, they, do like... this, they do this every Sunday. Like, now I really want to go to an Eastern Orthodox. Or... Well, we are going. I mean, that's the last episode this season. Wait. Stay tuned. Do they do that there? Yeah. We, won't, we won't be able to receive because we're Catholic. Um, but if we went to, like, a Byzantine Catholic church, which I've been to, yeah, you, you like, you could receive communion because they're Catholic. Just yeah, it's it's kind of nifty. It's kind of nifty. Um, I wonder what they're doing for COVID now. What I've seen them do for COVID, because again, over this past summer, I went and visited the churches. Um, was like they have like two communion spoons, and so flick One the wrist, give it to the deacon to sanitize. Take the other spoon, flick of the wrist, sanitize, and it's just like an ongoing process. Sometimes there's three spoons. But anyways, they try to, you know, that's what they did for COVID. Now with COVID heading down, I mean, you know, there there might not be Probably much of any protocols. So we'll see what it looks like uh, come Pascha. But uh, again, stay tuned for the last episode of the season. Um, okay, next question. Yeah. Which is... Very interesting, because I think this is where we may differ in points of views. And I think it goes to, like, what the root of confirmation is and what people believe of it. I've heard it both ways of, like, really, it doesn't necessarily, you don't need to understand the power that the sacrament has for you to still receive the fruits and gifts of the Holy Spirit. You know, like, the, mm. those are going to be bestowed on you. Going back to, like, Pentecost and, like, the whole reason we have confirmation. It's the same idea where it's, like, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you in that way, whether you understand it or not. Um, but I think the... I've also heard it that it is, like, the position where you are old enough, 
which this is also why it gets a little interesting about churches deciding when confirmation happens. Um, I think I differ with you in that, like, I think it should be happening in high school or even college. Because for me, I understand it as the point of view of, like, you are now choosing your faith. And, like, you are saying, yes, my godparents and my parents decided when I was an infant to baptize me in my faith. And now I am going to enter into the fullness of this faith and say, yes, I do believe this. And I will take these gifts that will be bestowed on me. And I will go out and make disciples. And I will go out and spread my faith. So I think it's different. Because then at the same time, for the people who haven't come to the fullness of realization, because some people don't come to that until, like, only 30 or something. Then they're sitting there with their whole lives without those gifts that could have been bestowed on them. So I think, do you, I feel like I already know the answer. Do you think that there's an aspect of like the person's choice in different sacraments? Obviously in baptism, we see that it is just to remove the state of original sin and come to the fullness of church. So the baby doesn't really even need to choose. But for those later sacraments, such as Believing that the Eucharist is actually the Eucharist. You know, like, how can a five-year-old come to fully know that when, you know, we have college students and when a lot of the Catholic Church doesn't even fully believe it, which is a problem in itself. But, like, how do we defend those claims? Okay. So, two things. One, of the people in your confirmation program, like the people you got confirmed with, how many of them are practicing? Probably 30%. Yeah. Uh, well, by my definition of practicing, I'm sure a lot well, of them would the, no, say that they but, are. But your definition of practicing is probably, you know, going to church every Sunday like you should be if you're a confirmed Catholic. Yeah. Receiving so, yes. Yeah. So, 30%. So, my point there is that, yeah, we're getting confirmed in high school and still, like... Valid. Yeah, it's their Very personal valid. choice, but it's not really doing anything. So well, that's then my at first. At the same time, it's still that's not my even first their personal choice. A lot of them do it. A lot of them do it. Parent pressure. Yeah, I agree. But again, that's that's kind of my point. Yeah. Is that yeah? But also, like, if I hadn't been told to do confirmation, what I did, like, I don't know when I'd end up getting confirmed. Yeah, because right? you're never so, going to feel ready. Right. So, I guess my point is. Yeah, the age really doesn't matter. Maybe to an extent it does, but in my opinion, it doesn't really. Number two, um, and perhaps more importantly, and applicable to all of the sacraments, is that there's three things that need to happen for a sacrament to be a sacrament. Do you know what those three things are? Okay, I'm just going to totally guess. <laughs> okay. The person has to be there. <laughs> Okay, for a, sac- maybe, a sacrament well, to be a sacrament, it has to be administered that. by someone, like, with the authority to do so. Okay, so, we're just going to not okay, listen to second, idea. Second, <laughs> the person has to... Nope. Recognize? Nope. Okay. Okay. So Obviously, there, Emma does not know what we're Catholic faith, even Sacramental theology. <laughs> <laughs> Um, Crash course. <laughs> three three things for a sacrament to be a sacrament. One is the form. And so, for That's example, better. recently in uh, hot debate is hot that debate. Um, to be baptized, you must be baptized 
in the name of the Father and of the Son oh, and of the Holy Spirit. A bunch of people weren't by saying I baptize you in the Trinitarian formula versus we baptize you, and so we is an improper form, and so the sacrament is not a sacrament because. And that's how some it's people are form. finding, finding right. out after the fact they're not mm-hmm. actually baptized. The other one, uh, the second thing is matter. And so the matter with which we use is important. So in the sacrament of confirmation, we use an oil and it's a, it's a holy oil. Um, for baptism, we use water and it must be pure water. We can't use like Gatorade, you know. But um, we... We at the Eucharist, we can't use grape juice. We have to use wine. Like there's certain things that have to be in place, and the that is the matter. The matter matters. What tangent? Yeah, I was told in eighth grade that if someone was dying and they said they wanted to be baptized, I could use my spit. Here's what I would say to that. It's it's a very gray area. Um, <laughs> in the matter of like, there is yeah. no available filtered water. If, well, it doesn't have to be filtered. Like, okay, clean water. I mean, Jesus was baptized in a river. Yeah. So, I mean, yeah, if it's an extreme circumstance, like, yeah, I suppose you could use your spit and it's better than nothing. But like, but like, river it's an extreme, okay, right? Extreme circumstance. Yeah, river water is cold. Um, yeah. What about like the beach? I mean, like all of these <laughs> things are like okay, but like ideally, ideally we're in a church <laughs> with holy water, you know. Ideally, <laughs> okay. Next, there's there's gray areas and all these, such as like when the priest is an alcoholic, so like we reduce the um, like the priest gets like a dispensation. It's a whole thing. Um, for for the alcohol content in the precious blood, it's it's a whole thing. Big tangent. Not going to get into it here. The point is the matter matters. Um, the third thing. So we have form. The words used matter. The things used. And the third thing is intention. The thing is intention of who is what Emma's supposed to ask, but she didn't. Intention of who? <laughs> the intention. Of the minister of the sacrament. So, who is the minister of the sacrament? I guess it depends on the sacrament. It does. So, um, good answer. In baptism, in uh, in baptism, the sacrament is a deacon or above. So, a deacon, a priest, or a bishop. Or me, if the person's dying. <laughs> we're gonna restrict our conversation to unextreme circumstances. <laughs> yeah, you, if a person's dying. Um, Baptism, the, the minister of the sacrament is a deacon or above. Uh, of course, for the Eucharist, for reconciliation, anointing of the sick, it's a priest or above, so a priest or a bishop. And then um, for holy orders and um, confirmation, it's the bishop. Um, bishop or above, which is just the bishop, because uh, there's nothing above bishop. Um, no. And so the last one, if you've been keeping track, I forgot one of the sacraments. Yeah, you did. Marriage. The ministers of the Mowage. sacrament of marriage are a man and a woman. So the man and the woman 
um, minister the sacrament to one another, the priest is there as a witness of the church. And so in the sacrament of marriage, the the form is I blank take you blank to be my love, whatever, et cetera, et cetera. The vows are the form. The matter is um, there is no matter. The ring doesn't really matter, but... If we want to get really into it, yeah. technically the matter would be children. I mean, you could argue that. You could argue, like, their love is the matter. I don't know what the matter is. Sorry. That's next episode anyways. So... But the fact is, the only sacrament in which the person receiving the sacrament changes whether or not it's a sacrament is the sacrament of marriage. And so all of these sacraments of initiation, the the only thing that matters is that the priest intends to give the person, or deacon in the case of baptism, intends to give the person the sacrament. So the deacon intends to baptize the person. The priest intends to confirm the person the priest intends to give the person the Eucharist. Um, so, yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. So that's why, at the end of the day, in my opinion, you know. A sacrament can be valid no matter what. It's just about what's going to be the most fruitful. Well, but then you no, can argue that a sacrament ever cannot, be... A sacrament cannot be valid no matter what. Well, I mean, if those three things are in place, the sacrament is valid. Right. Like, so, for example, uh, in a previous podcast, we talked about some people who have done some radical things during the liturgy that should not be done. Um, And so the fact is, it's a validly ordained priest trying to confect the Eucharist and does because he is a priest. So we have... We, we have the intention, and his intention is to create the Eucharist. We have the matter. He's using bread and wine. And we have the form. He uses the words, this is my body, and this is my blood, which it, it are the words required to make the body and blood the body and blood. And so, since all three of those things are met, met despite how much he's probably doing everything else wrong in the liturgy, the priest is, in fact, confecting the Eucharist, and it is a valid mass. Now, is it licit? Probably not, but it's valid, so it counts. Christopher Dixon. Emma Singletary. Explain why we believe the Eucharist is really the body and blood of Jesus Christ and not just his presence or a symbol of him. Now, mm. this is like the root, in my opinion, of Catholicism. Um, I do believe that that is like the pinnacle of our church is the fact that we do have the true body and blood of Christ and so why do we believe it this is a crazy thing that we do that so many people have problems with so let's just you know what are your thoughts like why do we believe this what's the theology on it so our bible loving protestant friends um, we all love the bible apparently (laughs) love to interpret the bible literally and one of the things they neglect to take literally is the fact that Jesus says that this is his body and this is his blood and to do this in remembrance of him. 
that's that's in the Bible, like word for word. So like, arguably the only thing that Jesus asks us to do, like quite literally. I mean, like it's a very clear statement of what he wants us to to do. You know, to honor him as God. You know, is is to participate in what was in the early days called the breaking of the bread and is now called communion Eucharist uh, or something to that extent. And so, um, you know, that's an ancient church tradition dating to literally the days of Jesus and um, theology, of course, developing over the years at no point did any major Christian tradition consider that the bread and wine were anything other than the body and blood. So the early church, there were three main groups of people, the Syrians, the Greeks, and the Latins, um, which are now the Syriac church, the Byzantine church, and the Roman church. Um, later on, there were four major churches, the Church of the East, the Oriental Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, and the Roman Catholic Church, and all four of those also upheld that the Communion Eucharist is the body and blood of Christ. And so that was unbroken until the time of the Protestant Reformation, um, which is 1,500 years since the time of Jesus. And so, um, yeah, that speaks for itself, I think. No, and it is something that's so interesting because I know we talked about in our group chat a couple months ago about how not only, like, is this such a hard teaching to, you know, get your head around, but, like, we're not asked to fully understand it. We're asked to believe. And so, like, there's this growing population in the Catholic Church of people not fully believing in the fullness of the Eucharist, that it is actually the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So... For someone who's struggling with that idea, kind of how would you explain that to them? Yeah. This is uh, the doctrine of transubstantiation, right? And so the best argument, the best way to understand it, I think, is through understanding of what substance and accidents are. Um, so let me define that and then go into what that means with respect to the Eucharist. So substance is what a thing is. For example, I am a human. But. Yeah, crazy <laughs> stuff. Um, the second thing is accidents. So it's what a thing appears to be. For example, I appear to be a human. Crazy, right? So, so in the case of me, my substance and accidents are the same. In the case of the table that Emma and I can look at in front of us, the substance and the accidents of it are the same. Same with the tree in front of us, the window, the computer, we're recording this on, the cup in Emma's hand, the phone in Emma's hand. All of these things, the substance and the accidents are the same. And that continues by the time we get to the Holy Mass. And so... When the gifts are brought up and prepared on the altar, the substance and accidents are the same. We have bread and wine. 
Those are the substance and the accidents of the two species. But then the consecration happens. And at that moment, the idea in, in trade substantiation uh, thinking is that the, the bread is still appearing as bread. And so its accidents are still bread. It tastes like bread. It looks like bread. If we were to put it into a whatever thing you use to analyze the like contents of it, it's bread. But the substance, what it actually is, changes to be the body of Christ. Same thing with the wine. It looks like wine. It tastes like wine. It has alcohol in it. You know, all of these things that would make wine wine, it's wine. It appears to be wine. Its accidents are wine. The priest says, this is my blood. And it becomes Jesus's blood. And so its substance becomes Jesus's blood with its accidents remaining under the appearance of wine. Well, and I think... I mean, the most, as all Christians, I think we all agree in a way of the same argument of that, you know, substance does not always equal accidents in the same sense of Jesus Christ in his living form. He looked human. He was human, but he was also God. And so in that same way, every Christian can agree on this in some way. Every Christian believes that Jesus Christ is God and man. Let's clarify what Emma said we were borderline heresy <laughs> what was heresy about that Jesus in both his substance and, and okay, his actions yes. was fully both divine. man and yes. God fully divine and fully human. so it's not like one was the other and one was one no yes. both were both yes. so it's but, not a good analogy okay. at all but here, it's not a good analogy for the. No, don't try no, to do it because you're getting really close to doing something you don't want to do. So don't do it, please. Let me explain okay. why that works okay. in this sense. Because for me, this was, and you could very well be about to change my entire thinking if this is actually heresy. Because I'm gonna have to go to confession. Because, because in my mind, the moment. I think for a very long time, I was like, oh, it's the presence of Christ. You know, it doesn't look like him, but, you know, like, he's in that. I didn't fully understand that it is fully, like, him in that. I think the moment where I was able to understand that was the moment where I was able to go, if God can come and look like man, then what stops God from coming and looking like a piece of bread? That's fair. No heresy in that? I think I think your reasoning is sound. Okay, so in that same, I just wouldn't use it in a theological debate, probably. Cause... But in the way that to explain to someone who doesn't, you know, whether they're Catholic or not, understanding like the argument of like yes, the body and blood is actually the body and blood, even if it does not up like appear to look like that. Yeah, that makes sense. God, Jesus Christ appeared to be human. Mm-hmm. yet was fully divine and fully human in his nature. Right. A piece of bread does not appear to be Jesus Christ in that fullness in, of reality, but it is in that same yeah. way. So we can all agree that 
in the Trinitarian idea that Jesus Christ is fully divine, fully human, but emphasis on the fully divine, if we can all agree that Jesus is God, then why can we not also agree that he has the power to become a piece of bread? Right. And I think that's where the argument gets. Like, for me, when I realized that, I was like, oh, that really hard teaching, which I will never argue to ever fully comprehend the Eucharist. I don't believe that we are supposed to. I don't think we will ever be able to understand it until we die and God reveals all of his fullness to us because I don't think that that's, I mean, it's a mystery of our faith. And I don't think that our human minds will ever be able to comprehend the holiness there. But for me, that teaching got a lot easier when I realized, you know, if I truly believe that God is all-powerful, and if I truly believe that God would come down and send his son to save us from our sins, then what's going to stop God from coming down and being present to me right here in the Eucharist? Yeah. And that's when I realized the fullness of what the Eucharist was in that sense. So when I was starting at the beginning where it sounded like a heresy, I wasn't going towards yeah. heresy. Yeah, let's, let's, <laughs> I, I do want to clarify that in maybe a way, at least like when I think of what you're saying. So there's two things going on here. One is the claim that we're making a substance accidents distinction of Jesus's human and divine natures, which is a gray area, in my opinion, um, in the fact that, yeah, Jesus does appear to be human, but he also does appear through miracles that he's done to be divine. Oh, yes. So, and no one can deny that. So, therefore, his accidents are both human and God, and his substance, obviously, is also both human and God. Therefore, that's why, that's why I didn't like making the substance accidents distinction on Jesus the God-man. But I do, and perhaps the more important point to make and that I think you were steering your answer towards um, away from potential heresy <laughs> is um, that that because God was able to take the form of a human, God can also take the form of a piece of bread. Yes, um, which I think it should is is a really great argument and and should be used, but. I want to separate that from the substance accidents distinction. Um, so two separate arguments that we have going on here. But both of them, I think, are good. Yeah, I think they work in correlation to each other. I don't think they're the same argument, but they are. I don't. I think just as in all things of our faith, when it comes down to it, it all works together. Yeah. So. And at the end of the day, like Emma kind of concluded by saying, was that it's a mystery, right? So like. I mean, in in the East, both Catholic and Orthodox, they call them the divine mysteries, mm -hmm. not like body and blood or whatever. They call the Eucharist the divine mysteries because at the end of the day, they are mysterious. So we don't know how it can be that the bread and wine become the body and blood, but they do. So. Yeah. And I think that's just like what we are called to in our faith is to have faith in that and to trust mm -hmm in that teaching that is rooted fully in scripture. So it all works together. Now for a fun question. Now that we've explained what we as Catholics believe in. Oh boys. Okay, so we have 
Well, I guess should I save the fun one until after the? Yeah, I'm gonna. Say I mean, if you have another serious one, let's do a more serious one, and then we can like. Hand well, it's not. It's not like super fun, but it's it's fun in my eyes just because I think it's interesting. Then let's end on the fun. Okay, one. we'll end on the fun one. Stay tuned. Um, <laughs> <laughs> less fun one, but still equally important because I've been wondering it for a very long time. <laughs> oh boy! Almost every time answer. I go to mass, I'm sitting and I'm kneeling and I'm like, hmm, when does it actually happen? At what point in the Eucharistic prayer is the bread and wine actually transformed into the body and blood? Yeah, so... Um, I think I know what it is, but I also know okay. that there's a lot of words that go around and a lot of bell ringing, so... So... Here's the thing. <laughs> I, I saw that you had uh, that question written down, and I knew I was going to have fun answering it. Um <laughs> So, once again, we're at a conflict because our Eastern friends, both Catholic and Orthodox, have different Eucharistic prayers than we do, which is a problem with respect to this particular thing. From a Roman Catholic perspective, the easiest answer and and the answer I'd give uh, in usual conversation is when the priest says this is my body and this is my blood that's when it becomes the body and blood because we um, believe in, in right. and so after the Eucharistic prayer begins it must finish so if the priest dies in the middle of the Eucharistic prayer another priest must come in take his place and finish the Eucharistic prayer um, that's just the law of the church and so um that makes sense, right? I mean, like, you know, the prayer isn't complete until the end of the Eucharistic prayer at the Great Amen. Now, so, yeah, it's kind of like a, a gray area. But um, I I would say when he says, this is my body, this is my blood, because those are the necessary, uh, the necessary words that must be used when confecting the Eucharist. Now... Where we get into an issue is when we talk to our friends in the East about the Eucharist. And again, we believe they have the same Eucharist we do. Um, it's the body and blood of Christ, valid priesthood, etc., etc. Different Eucharistic prayer. They use slightly different words from a tradition that's arguably even more ancient than our own, um, but at least on par with it. And so... Um, they use slightly different words, and so in their liturgy, they, of course, because to get the Eucharist, say, this is my body, this is my blood. But after that, they usually say something to the along the lines of, uh, by the descent of the Holy Spirit, make these gifts the body and blood of Christ, mm -hmm. or something to that. That's called the epiclesis, the, the descent of calling in the invocation of the Holy Spirit is the epiclesis. Now, in the West, here in Rome, we do that before we say, this is my body, this is what. That's when you hear the bells the, the first, first time. time. Yeah. Yeah. Everywhere else, the epiclesis is done after the words of institution. The, this is my body, this is my blood thing. So there's great debate over... Um, is is it at the epiclesis, which 
arguably, traditionally, should occur after the words of institution, or does it occur at the words of institution? At the end of the day, I don't think it matters. No, it really doesn't. But it's an interesting debate to have. If you're going to have the debate, there's your information. There are two opinions. I think both of them are good and make sense. Um, Perhaps, I suppose, if you really wanted to play fun, uh, you could say once both the epiclesis and the words of institution are completed. Um, Which is the most... So then it doesn't really matter which order they go in. Yeah. But um, some people have argued that a requirement for recommunion with the East is that we move our epiclesis to after the words of institution. So um, if we want to recommune with the East properly, then... Um, that would be something we would have to do. I don't, I'm not sure that would be a necessary requirement. There are other theological concerns, but um, there you go. That's your information. There's, there's yeah. two options. The middle option is saying once both are completed. So, Well, and then here's a question. Do we as Catholics, since we believe that that Eucharist is completely valid, uh, believe, like, do the Eastern Catholics agree that their priest is in persona Christi during the prayer. Yeah, so... Because um, that seems to be where so that would matter. I, I don't know for sure about Eastern Catholics. Because um, Eastern Catholics are weird because they have like some things that they take from Roman Catholics and some things that they have from their tradition of Eastern Orthodoxy. And it's kind of like jumbled all up together, right? Um, so it's kind of like a gray area. Uh, again, we, we're really liking gray areas in this podcast. I was really about to say We're going to call this the gray area podcast. Um, uh, anyway. <laughs> where we don't actually have an answer. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Um, so in the Eastern Orthodox Church, they use two different terms uh, for the priest. One is in the person of Christ, um, which is for everything except for the anaphora, or Eucharistic prayer. For the anaphora, um, the Eucharistic prayer, again, same thing, um, the, the priest is in the person of the church, is the term they use. Um, my understanding, theology is comparable, doesn't really matter. Therefore, the answer for Eastern Catholics is theology is comparable. Doesn't really matter. Okay. Well, there we go. Um, that will be maybe something we talk about later. But yeah, super interesting opening up of the yeah. debate of questions. Easy answer is the institution of the Eucharist, but it doesn't also really matter that much. Now for the fun question. Oh boy! So if you haven't listened to our Mary episode, go do that. But we talked about how you don't have to believe in Marian apparitions uh-huh. in the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. It's not a requirement of our faith, although it is, in my mind, highly encouraged. <laughs> what about Eucharistic, I don't think this is the right word, apparitions? Like, miracles like, within the Eucharist. Mm-hmm. For example, I remember my mom reading, I think it was a book, uh, just about different Eucharistic miracles, and one of them being, I feel like it was in Poland or something, you know, when the priest held up the host to say, behold, this is the Lamb of God, I believe it was that part of it, 
the host actually began to bleed. Yeah. Do so, we all is that a requirement to believe in, and do we believe that they are true? What's what? How does that go about? So, um, there's a more in-depth process for Eucharistic miracles than Marian apparition because, you know, just the Eucharist. Um, <laughs> there's been extensive studies done on them. Usually, what's done is you know the priest reports it to his bishop, the bishop you know, conducts an investigation, sends stuff to the Vatican, the Vatican then does investigations and whatnot. Uh, I mean, there's been stuff, there's been Eucharistic miracles that have happened. It's been a host and like they send it off to a lab to get testing done on it. And it dates to be like a first century Jewish man. Like how did a piece of first century Jewish male flesh end up in somebody like like and, and like there's been other stuff it's like the the um, the the blood that came from it has like trauma and it has like properties in itself that would only be there after sustaining trauma from like significant loss of blood and it's like for example you know being you know yeah like like what what are the odds of this right and so um all these other i mean just the mere fact that a piece of bread you know changed its accidents to look like (laughs) flesh is um kind of crazy right and so um what i at the end of the day, that's kind of the process. As it goes to the Vatican, the Vatican says that they do enough research to be like, yeah, yeah this is legit or, you know, maybe not things. legit. I don't know what's going on here type thing. Um, and so if it is legit, uh, wow. I mean, the thing is, all of these are private miracles. Um, and so in general, what I'd say is, is any miracle isn't required to be believed by the faithful. For example, if I don't know, I'm driving home today and I'm definitely going to get in a car crash, but then I don't get in a car crash. Like, Emma didn't like that. (laughs) And so, but I don't get in a car crash, then like... Does the whole Catholic Church have to believe that Chris's guardian angel picked him up and moved him? Like, no. Obviously not. And so um, that's kind of where that's at. Again, I'm fairly certain you don't have to believe in Eucharistic miracles. However, if you do, kind of cool. And there's cool things like what I just said. Of course, um, the the big deal when Blessed Carlo became Blessed Carlo um, was like his thing was creating a website with Eucharistic miracles on it. Like that's pretty cool. Um, and so you know that's that's where we're at. Like yeah, it's cool stuff, good stuff. Why wouldn't you believe it? I mean, like uh, there's stories of like a priest who was beginning to doubt that the body and blood. Uh, that, that the bread and wine became the body and blood. And so, like, as he was saying the Mass, 
it became flesh. You know, like, yeah, that's pretty powerful. Why wouldn't you believe it? I mean, if the priest begins to doubt and then a miracle of that, like, yeah, it's just really cool. It is really, really cool. If you have not researched them, you should do that. Yeah, go for it. And apparently there's a website for it. Um, I don't think Blessed Carlo's website exists anymore. But there are There are other legit there websites. Are other websites that exist. <laughs> okay. Well, that's the end of my questions. You know what time it is. It's time for a joke. Oh, wait. I guess I should wrap it up first. Wait, do I wrap it up yeah, after the joke? Wrap it up after the joke. Okay, okay, okay. I have two really good ones oh, today. Boy. The first one is pretty funny for me. Okay, get on with that. What do you call a sleepwalking nun? I don't know what. A Roman Catholic. Uh huh. Uh, I never heard that one before in Have my life. Have you actually not heard it? I hadn't heard it. Okay. Um. Okay. Jesus was standing over the woman caught in adultery, and he challenged the crowd that he who is without sin cast the first stone. Suddenly, a rock hits the back of his head. Jesus turns around and yells, Mom! <laughs> okay, that one is good. That one is good. Why didn't you do that on last podcast? If you don't understand that joke, watch the last podcast. Or listen to the... Yeah, okay. So today on... <laughs> Our podcast, we talked about the sacraments of initiation, baptism, confirmation, and the Eucharist, as Chris likes to put them in order. Um, if you have any questions, text Chris. His number is <laughs> 1. Not 405. We aren't going to put that podcast. <laughs> uh, if you have any questions, you know how to contact us, probably. Um, <laughs> if not, Google. Um, and Chris has a really good Instagram, so you can just DM him. Um, yeah, so that's what we're going to talk about today. Come back to the next episode to hear about the other four sacraments. Uh, should be really interesting. Um, and yeah, that's all for Returning to Tradition. Bloopers. <laughs> no over and out? What oh, 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 over and out. <laughs> and so the first one that we can see um, actively within the right is that they are kind of like step... What? Pause. I had a dream about you. You were doing the consecration. Okay. Unpause. Go. <laughs> That's all you have to say? That just popped in my head. <laughs> I had a dream about that. Um, yeah, okay. It's like, <laughs> I don't think you were, like, it was weird because I was, like, in my head, I was like, oh, wait, he's not supposed to be doing that yet. But, like, I saw you doing it. And I was like, okay. <laughs> okay, anyway, continue. This is my... Oh, wait. <laughs> <laughs> You're a mushy banana. You literally were waiting to do that. <laughs> oh my goodness. Oh god. Emma's eating a mushy banana for, for context. Um, yeah. We can't record a podcast if you're eating uh, peanut butter banana. I'm doing ASMR. <laughs> <laughs> That's gonna be so good. <laughs> oh, no! So good. Hello, and
and welcome to today's episode I'm of not Division. When you're like chowing down on a banana, we can't have a conversation. Yeah, we can. No, we can't. I'm having one right now. No, <laughs> no. Like, I am really good at talking with my mouth full. No, you Mom, are. Mom, don't listen to that. <laughs> I totally never talk with my mouth full. <laughs> yeah. Bananas are different. <laughs> you cannot tell me that you don't understand everything I'm saying right now. I mean, I do, but like, all the good. people. No bite. I'm good, thank you. Good, because I wanted it. <laughs> <laughs> Why would you offer? Because I love you more than I love myself. Oh. <laughs> 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 